All right, hard yarners. We uh, getting a- fucking high. <laughs> we had a, a very great chat today um, with uh, Professor a spe- Nicole Lee, perfect from Three Sixty Edge, uh, who specialises in drug law reform and also um, alcohol, other drugs, and um, possible kind of rehab uh, and ways forward. Yeah, there um, was there was some pretty cool little analogies in there yeah. and, and some myths. Some good fake news is that we busted. Some myths like the whole idea about uh, illegal drugs. Don't, dr- tell, yeah, don't yeah, tell people, actually, get yeah, them to listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a hook. <laughs> yeah, so awesome. Um, yeah, really, really cool. Great insights. Um, super informative. And if, if anybody's going through anything with family members, like seriously, mm. this is probably a good episode for you. Yeah, definitely. And if you want to learn some stuff about drugs as well, this is great. And if you want to see Branchy hit the pipe, go to 46 minutes in. What? <laughs> <laughs> let's get hired. Oh, let's Not get a good hard. hook. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good hook. It's a good hook. Let's get hard. <laughs> Welcome to Hard Yarns Podcast. I am fucking fat. <laughs> Anything Chris White says, please disregard it. 5D is actually a state of being. It's a unity consciousness. That was Hard Yarns with me, Frankie Rose. So I'm going to throw it over to your co-host. Daniel Jelby. And Cameron Brand. I would do this and then I'd gong. <laughs> Free in attendance for the millions listening at home. <laughs> Let's get home. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll start from now, so that's Cameron. Finally, you can see me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll start from now. So maybe um, we'll kick off with, if you just introduce yourself, um, what you're a specialist in, and then we can go from there. Uh, yeah, Nicole Lee. I uh, have a background in psychology, in practicing psychology, and I've uh, previously been a, an academic and now i uh, own and run 360 Edge, which is a consultancy in the health sector that's helping, uh, I guess, governments and um, health services and practitioners improve services for people with alcohol and drugs and mental health problems. Um, So my specialty is in both of those things, but more in the kind of into the the nexus between them. which we kind of call comorbidity sometimes or dual diagnosis. Cool. Um, yeah. Cool. Because I, I first came across you in an article um, in the West Australian when they were talking about legalisation and they asked for your expert opinion. Um, so maybe we'll kick off with that and then we can talk about um, a bit of comorbidity, the the struggles that we face with um, yeah. basically normalising or getting rid of stigma um, and then anything that we love hearing like new stuff that we haven't heard of or myths or fake news and then mm. interesting facts. Um, and I saw a few of your papers on uh, methamphetamine and alcohol, uh, a, a research article on alcohol and being a high school teacher. Um, I, I want to hear a little bit about that and how effective they were. Yeah, specifically because alcohol seems to be the one that doesn't get as much as it, attention as I think it should because it's probably one of the most damaging or <laughs> damaging drugs going around, you know? So, yeah. Well, yeah, it absolutely is the... It's the drug that causes the most harm, but I think because so many people use it, mm. um, we don't talk about those harms very much. Yeah. So, um, well, because we're on alcohol, let's just go with that because yeah. it's a natural flow. So uh, the article that I was interested in was they were looking at the efficacy of um, alcohol programs in schools. Uh, I don't know if that's right. It was a 2016 one. Um, yeah. Now, being an ex-phys ed teacher and an ex-science uh, teacher, we it's so... 
old school and I don't know if telling kids that alcohol's bad uh, or just say no works and it hasn't really progressed too far from that like sometimes you get speakers in that have drunk drove um, but from all research that I've heard having those guest speakers in doesn't actually influence um, their decisions too much they just listen for a day and then next minute they, they go out and they participate in those behaviors anyway um, yeah what did you find was effective and um, what do you think is the way forward uh, with alcohol and youth and then we can go from there yeah right was I think um, the first thing to remember is that um, kids and young people don't see the world the same way that adults do. And so when you um, kind of parade in front of them, people who've had terrible drug problems and are now recovered from that, um, we see someone who's gone through a, a terrible thing that we wouldn't want to go through and who's managed to get out of it. The kids see someone who's just got out of it and is fine. Mm, yeah. They've used drugs and they're fine. And so they don't... Um, have the same kind of interpretation of that hardship as we might. They don't yeah. have they don't have that level of um, understanding of how hard that was for someone to um, have an addiction problem and then come out of it. Um, and you know, I, I mean, my, my son is now eighteen. He's just um, just left school. And like just this year, so he's going on schoolies right now. Just he's not he's not a big schoolies. He didn't want to go, so I don't know. Is that because of everything you've taught him over the years? <laughs> the I, feel like, I feel like I've done my job, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, but he, I remember um, he was at school, it was quite a few years ago now, maybe year four or five, and he came home, and I have been indoctrinating him since birth about this stuff, of course. Yeah. Um, but he came home and said, you would not believe what we did at school today. It was absolutely ridiculous. They had a, a policeman come in and say, and um, talk about drugs and alcohol use, which is, I think for me, um, not appropriate to start with. Yeah. Um, alcohol and drug use is a, a health issue, not a policing issue. So the police shouldn't be talking about yeah. um, harm reduction for kids at all nice. but on top of that um this police um person who i'm sure has had the best of intentions kind of put a um put some alcohol in a glass and cracked an egg into it and of course the egg curdled and the message was um this is what happens to your brain on alcohol oh that's my what God. nancy reagan did <laughs> nancy reagan did that in the 80s where they cook yeah. it, they go on egg and they, this is your brain. brain on this is your brain on drugs. And they fry it. And they the, fry the egg. That is, yeah. uh, and, and what was the old, uh, the video that they had for the marijuana one? The, um, Turns you gay. Yeah, no, <laughs> it was just the, yeah, again, the demonization of like. Yeah, the reefer madness type uh, of. Reefer because madness, that's yeah. the one. We yeah. all know yeah. that uh, brain tissue and eggs are made from the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and an egg has the capability of consciousness. So that is, yeah. that is. I mean, exactly. That's more of a MasterChef um, lesson than anything. <laughs> Don't put eggs in beer. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And even, you know, even my year five child knew that was ridiculous and yeah. they all just thought it was really funny. So they didn't learn anything yeah. from that. Or they learned so, a new new shot. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Isn't that, that's our punishment drink at footy clubs. We used to put eggs in Guinness. <laughs> that was literally, you're late to the pub, here's an egg in a Guinness. Oh, well, at least it's healthier. <laughs> 
protein. Yeah. Protein. Wow. Extra so, protein, yeah. so you think obviously that is antiquated. Using fear doesn't work. Yeah, using fear doesn't work. Using kind of ex-users doesn't work. Um, using police doesn't work. Lecturing kids do- doesn't work. Mm. Um, the thing that works is when um, there are a couple of um, programs that have been through a lot of research and we know they are effective and the thing that they have in common is that they're really embedded into the curriculum they're not Mm -hmm. just like one-off guest speakers coming to talk yeah and um they take a a kind of a harm reduction approach i guess so explaining both the good things and the less good things that happen when you take drugs. So we know that when you do that, kids make pretty good decisions on their own. They don't need to be told um, this is bad and you shouldn't do it. Yeah. In fact, they just kind of get more interested in drugs when you do that. Yeah. Mm. So I remember um, in my first year out, maybe I had to take a class uh, relief. I won't say what school, but um, I've resigned from teaching, so whatever. But <laughs> the question was like, what does MDMA do, sir? I'm like, oh, well, like um, you feel love, like music's better, um, you, you're more social. And then they're like, that sounds wicked. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh but you shouldn't do it. <laughs> so, um, but the other the other struggle that we get is you've got teachers who are phys ed teachers, so primarily trained for four years at uni about how to teach a skill and how to grasp a concept and maybe a little bit of health. And then they're expected to implement um, the, the positive and negative changes over an extended period of time, which it doesn't make any sense. You should get an external professional to come in and mm. really work through that um, instead of adding it onto the list of things that teachers have to do. Um, yeah. But do you guys does, get funding for that sort of stuff? It, does that exist or not really? Mm. Um, it's it, The schools have to pay for this stuff themselves yeah. and there's only generally in every state there's just a requirement for some kind of drug and alcohol education mm. at school. And so the schools really have, um, you know, on the one hand, they've got kind of free reign to um, choose what that looks like, but they've got very little funding to do that. And so they tend to go for the cheapest, easiest option. Kind of like drugs themselves expect. sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, well, you'd, I mean, just given the statistics, Absolutely, that yeah. would be true. <laughs> yeah, wow. So um, moving into more adults then, um, because the article I saw what had to do with adults, is there a similar um, train of thought or research when it comes to legalisation or decriminalisation of um, drugs in society? Um, is that something that you've been asked about on your opinion or was that did they just source you and quote you because that's something that we're quite um, yeah. interested in and, and I find the demonisation and the criminalisation for amounts that really are, are not harmful to an individual um, and then people that end up in jail for marijuana or MDMA where they've only really, mm. you know, had, a, in quotations, a good time on, them, on themselves and been caught. Yeah. Um, what do you think's the way forward? What's your professional opinion? And yeah, mm. kind of lead into that. Yeah, well, I think the, the first thing to recognise is that this kind of prohibition criminalisation approach hasn't worked whatever way you look at it whether you think it's right or not whatever way you look at it um it hasn't reduced harms it hasn't reduced use um it hasn't reduced access to drugs for young people by any measure it's a complete failure so the first thing is that we need to think of some other way yeah is is port is approach it 
sorry to interrupt, is is Portugal like the the example of what they've done over there you know, with their, I think the heroin um, epidemic they had going on and the and the great results they had through their their sort of programs. Um, not only through the, I think it maybe you can go further into whether whether decriminalisation or legalisation. I can't quite recall, but um, yeah, it seemed to have a really good um, result. And not only that, putting effort back into the community and, and creating a, a much more enjoyable lifestyle for everyone involved. Yeah, no, that's right. So what Portugal did was um, decriminalise drugs. So they're still illegal yep. to illicit drugs are still illegal to use there, same kinds of drugs that we have that are illegal here, um, but they've removed the criminal penalties from them. Uh, and so if you get caught with um, small amounts of heroin or ice or cannabis, any other drug, um, you um, may be, uh, you'll be arrested, but um, there's a mandatory um, referral to a panel rather than charging you with any kind of offence, you um, are referred to a panel. On the panel is uh, some health people, legal people, a range of um, people who then decide, do an assessment and decide whether you need to um, have some education about using more safely um, or whether you need to go to treatment or whether... Um, some other option is available so they're, pro- so they're providing support as opposed to just locking you up, throwing away the key and, and hoping you sort yourself out. Yeah, because we know that when people go to prison for drug problems, sometimes people go into prison without drug problems and come out mm. with drug problems. Yep. So got- there's, you know, it's not a good way to reduce drug use or to reduce harms. Yeah, I've got a few mates in now and they can get anything they want. Like it's not, yeah. <laughs> it's not a place where you dry out. Mm. Um, no and I think that's a um like when you think of it if you can't keep drugs out of prison how are you going to keep drugs out of society it's just not a feasible um goal to have a drug-free society it's just not going to happen yeah and I mean people take drugs for different reasons but I guess um what is what's the main is it because we've got politicians that are old school in their way of thinking what's the main pushback that we find when you present research-based evidence that it's not working and there's alternative versions what are you like uh fighting for that to happen or are you um sort of away from that and what what's the main pushback that we that we get yeah well i think um a lot of the lobbying against decriminalization or um what I would refer to as regulation or some people would say legalisation, but regulation, so that might look something like, you know, um, the way we regulate alcohol or tobacco, for example. Mm. Um, I think the the pushback from people um, is, is relatively, is a small number of very kind of Loud. noisy wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because most most Australians support decriminalisation by far the majority, and um, most people support a less punitive approach to dealing with drugs. And most people in Australia um, a, a, a support a, um, a a health approach rather than a criminal justice approach. Um, most of the pushback, I think, is from people who are genuinely, but um, misguidedly worried that if we decriminalise or regulate drugs, 
that there'll be this massive explosion in people who use drugs. And there's no evidence that that will occur from other jurisdictions who who've decriminalised or legalised. Yeah. Um, what are some places other than Portugal? Because I think that was a long time ago, hey, the Portugal one. Are there any more recent examples? Mm. Yeah, so Portugal was about 20 years ago now. Yeah. And they've, as you said, Cam, they've shown really good results mm. from um, a reduction mm. in criminal activity, a, a reduction in people who, who use problematically, more people going into treatment. Um, in the US, a really interesting situation because... There's still a really hard line. Um, it's softening a little bit now, but a really hard line approach to drugs at the federal level. But many of the states have either legalised cannabis, um, decriminalised um, cannabis, or decriminalised a range of drugs. Mm. And the um, there's a like Oregon has just recently um, made changes to their laws. Um, you know, California, it's pretty freely available. Canada's also just um, made changes. Uruguay, there's a lot of jurisdictions around the world now that have either decriminalised or legalised drugs. And it hasn't been the, the anarchy that people, that the Karens would uh, suggest. <laughs> no, the sky hasn't fallen in at all. What I, what I really... Uh, and, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this. You see the sort of shallow, empty gestures from some of the politicians. Look at Joe Biden's recent promise to decriminalise marijuana in his campaign. <clears throat> and instead of decriminalising, he decided to release everyone that was imprisoned at a federal level for possessing marijuana, which was zero. <laughs> so he made this big press conference how he was fulfilling his oath which was not his oath his oath was to decriminalize not release the yeah. people who were in prison and none of them are imprisoned at a, at a federal level they're all yeah. imprisoned at a state level and then his promise was and then i will urge i will urge strongly my state governors and well, I think representatives with his dementia to- he needs some seat <laughs> <laughs> wow. but yeah does that do you find that's a <clears throat> That those because you you did say that there a lot of people do support the decriminalisation and the the less punitive mm. actions upon people like this. Do you feel like people are using that as a, a politicising it and using it as a, a way to get into power and and stuff, and then just not putting into action what they're promising? Um, well, it's it, I mean Joe Biden's comments were really interesting because I think on one hand that was a really brave step for him to say. This is, it's not working the way we've been doing it and yes. it's ridiculous and we need to change it. Um, the fact that he didn't kind of go on to change it, um, mm. I don't know, we need to give him more time or whatever, but the fact that he actually said that out loud in public mm-hmm. um, is a pretty big step because a lot of our politicians, if you um, talk to them privately, they're, they're like the rest of Australia, quite supportive of um, a different approach, but... Uh, nervous about putting that into legislation. So it's the fear of them sticking their neck out and potentially... Yeah. Well, you're losing a, a, a huge majority of a vote, I guess, that would potentially be... Well, that's be what the, you think. But yeah, well, that's true. But maybe that's the, the, the people who are very rigid with their ideas, even the religious community that might be like, no, drugs are bad, no matter what. I guess you... you well, you're I think some losing. of the religious members are doing much worse things <laughs> than drugs. Uh, so. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I guess, is that something that you're involved with in trying to influence policy within Australia and, and pushing towards a, 
a mental health yeah exactly a mental health approach rather than a criminalization approach yeah i'm definitely in favor of that and i speak at every opportunity (laughs) i can um about the research evidence and just the pragmatics of it i think um is really important you know just it, it, it doesn't as I said, that you know, it's impossible to get a drug-free society. We're just never going to be able to do that. Throughout history, um, people have some people have used something. They and they always find a way around any laws in mm. order to use drugs. So we've we know that about nearly half of the adult population has tried cannabis, despite it being illegal mm. in most states. So you know that's half of half of the adult population and does it put like by regulating it would that take the power away from you know the the the, the bad sort of uh bad people you know the the cartels i guess and the, the people who run the drugs and and really cause the issues uh giving yeah. a, giving bad product and you know causing probably more overdoses and, and issues itself if it's regulated wouldn't it be um, you know, a, a more cleaner version of every drug and, and a safer version? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's the um, key argument for regulation. Decriminalisation um, reduces the impact of the criminal justice system on people, on individuals that use drugs, but it doesn't do anything about the drug market, yeah. really. And it has minor impact on the drug market. But if you regulate the drugs, you take it out of the hands of criminals and you um, it's more like a pharmaceutical then or alcohol or tobacco where Sorry. there are um, restrictions on what you can put in it and, um, you know, the dose. And so you're taking... People will be taking a known dose. They'll know exactly what's in it. Um, one of the things that is the a kind of um, that people get mixed up with they they really have started to believe that um, drugs are illegal because they're dangerous, but it's actually the other way around. They're actually made more dangerous because they're illegal and they're made in backyard labs. People don't know what's in them. It's easy to mix them with all sorts of shit and rubbish and. Yeah, and yeah, so wow, when you start, a... when you use it, you don't actually know what you're getting, and that is the reason why people are um, trying to get pill testing or drug checking mm-hmm. up and running more regularly. But if we regulated drugs, we wouldn't need any of that yeah. because people would already know what the, what was in their drugs. That's well, such an interesting insight. I've never thought of it being the reverse. Yeah, where it's actually more dangerous being illegal than legal, and I mean, what government would not want to make extra tax and extra income? Yeah. From, like, they would make yeah. so much money and it would be safer. It's just so weird that is it so... Is it... Because I understand in Australia is a very different subject. So America, I know they run on a privatised prison sort of style program. So they make money from having people in prison. So they sort of prioritise having people yeah, go to jail for these sorts of profits issues. Profits over Prof- people. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know what the, the go is in Australia... Um, and the policy sort of reform there. But I, I do see, and maybe you'll know better, the country that they even have injection rooms where they can safely inject people with heroin and then slowly bring them off heroin and, t- and provide them with support instead of just throwing away the key. Yeah, so we've got two of those in Australia as well. Wow. Um, 
One of them is in Sydney that's been running for probably about 20, I think they've just had their 20, 21st anniversary. And the other one's um, in Melbourne, that's only a few years old. Um, but that's exactly what happens. So they're, they're not, people aren't supplied with drugs or anything. They're, they're just um, given a safe place and clean equipment to mm. use. And so um, it significantly reduces overdose and it also significantly reduces um, litter of, you know, mm. needles and things in the public because yeah. they're, they're in a space where they can dispose of those things um, yeah. safely. Because I guess not everyone that is addicted is this cracked out junkie that doesn't care about other people. Some of them have got just mental health issues or trauma and it's not like they want to do damage Um they're trying to, yeah, trying to, you know, plaster up that that issue. So um, it's not just a matter of, oh, here's an injection room. Yeah. We've solved the problems. What's mm. what are the next steps um, in the rehabilitation process? Because if you're going to do heroin, you have you probably either got some sort of trauma that you're trying to fix, um, or you become addicted to it, your body or whatever. So what processes then get put in place to help people get off? Because if you don't want to get off it like or you're not ready to yet and you haven't faced those demons like as a psychologist what's what's effective because i've never really thought about you know if actually weaning you off if you want to do it mm. and you don't want to get better then then you're not going to right yeah so yeah. what's well i think that the first thing to kind of answer your question sideways yeah. the first question the first thing is that um somewhere between 80 and 90% of people who use drugs don't have a problem with them. Mm. They only use occasionally as they get older, their drug use just drops off naturally because they've got other responsibilities of working kids, families, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and their so dealers get actually, older and have kids. So they can't, <laughs> can't get it from anywhere. <laughs> so actually most people who use drugs, even injecting drugs, um, aren't addicted to them, don't have a problem with them. Mm. And then we've got this um, smaller proportion of people, and you're right, Dan, that they are, um, they tend to have some kind of trauma in their, trauma or neglect in their background or even as adults. Um, and it's a really complicated relationship. And you can't just say, well, you should stop using because yeah. they're, they're kind of medicating their pain, really, a lot of them. Um, so, when you go into a, a medically supervised injecting facility, there's nurses and um, doctors there who, and um, some support staff who make sure that if you overdose, you're revived, um, can provide you with information so that you use safely and then can also provide you with information about treatment and referral to treatment from there. And um, treatments, actually, people have this idea that drug treatment is not very effective, but it, it is really effective. Um, most people who get drug treatment uh, get better. There's a, a small proportion that maybe try multiple things before they find the, the one thing that's right for them. Mm -hmm. um, and the relapse rate is about as high as for other, other chronic kind of um, conditions like diabetes and asthma and heart disease and those kinds of longer-term problems. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot to be optimistic about if you go into treatment. Lots of different options. So if one thing doesn't work, 
there's multiple other things that you can try. There's residential treatment, there's counselling for people who um, have heroin problems. The single most effective treatment is methadone or buprenorphine, which is a replacement uh, a replacement therapy. So it kind of blocks the opioid receptors so that you don't feel like using on top because the, the receptors are already satisfied. And then you can go get a job, you can go about your daily life, you're not constantly looking for drugs or doing things to get money for drugs or whatever. You can you can kind of get back to a an inverted commas normal life. Mm. And, and now I, I'm interested in, in, so once we get into that part of life, <clears throat> at what point do you start, instead of putting a Band-Aid on the issue with, you know, the methadone and stuff like that, addressing the issues that cause them to feel like they needed to turn to drugs because they had nothing else? Is that like something yeah, that... So we we do- br- Sorry, yeah, for sure. So we do know that um, methadone and buprenorphine and some other newer um, replacement therapies are really effective in helping people kind of get back on their feet. Um, It reduces criminal um, behaviour, improves general health. It allows people to go back to work and kind of integrate back into mainstream society. Um, But then if the driver of the drug use is trauma then or anxiety or depression or um, any other number of things, then that also needs to be addressed. Otherwise, the relapse rate is pretty high. So if you just kind of uh, withdraw from drugs and then just go back to your normal life without uh, addressing anything else, um, you're very likely to relapse after that. So that's kind of cool. We've kind of hit two myths about drugs or three um, inadvertently yeah. that the illegal. illegal drugs mm. are safer um, than legal legalising safer, that relapse isn't um, as high and, and treatment works. Mm. Um, the thing I wanted to ask about uh, next would be, um, oh, first of all, are there any other myths that people think? Um, before I move on to my next point, are there any other things that people get completely wrong or research has actually shown new evidence and changed the way that we thought about something else? Um, I think we've covered all of yeah. the, the drug um, drug education in schools, yeah. um, legalisation, yeah. yeah treatment. I, one, oh, one of the things is um, that governments love to do, which is really ineffective, is... these mass media campaigns that go out on TV, hugely expensive, but um, we know from research that they uh, don't have really any impact at all. They improve, uh, well, people um, see them and and sometimes it improves their knowledge about things, but also sometimes it makes um, drug use look more attractive and they Mm. might uh, have not been interested before and now are interested so there's a lot of kind of risks so there's no real benefits but there's a possible negative (laughs) yeah yeah. i I think it's it seems quite risky to me and without any good benefit but it feels like it feels like the right thing to do intuitively if you tell everyone how bad drugs are then surely they won't use them or surely they'll stop but the reality is that that's not the case i'm sure drowning witches felt like the right thing to do as well (laughs) you know until they figured out that 
they well, were probably under the wrong movement there. Well, we seem to see that uh, a bit. Like, obviously, with the decriminalisation, you would have thought that would have just skyrocketed, but it's had the opposite effect and actually yeah, it, it lowers not only the overdose rate but the criminal um, activity going around and, and a lot of other things. So, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. And the fact that it's like 10% of users have a problem and 90% are completely fine, which is pretty much my experience. Like, lots and lots of people I know partake in recreational drug use and they've got full-time jobs completely fine and it's not an issue so yeah absolutely it's always the squeaky wheel that gets the grease unfortunately or the squeaky elbow that gets the shot i don't know how you'd put it in drug terms (laughs) but um the one thing that i saw you did quite do quite a bit on is methamphetamine and I i feel like meth and heroin are kind of different because heroin is more of a downer and people are lying back not doing a lot then the crime is probably worse but the effect of methamphetamine on people seems to be probably the most intense out of all the illicit drugs is that a fair statement or is that just a stereotype do you think um no i think that's a a fairly accurate statement um i think i mean the, the thing is that when i first started in this field and was um researching stimulants and yep. amphetamines um there was no ice uh, and the the reason well part of the reason that ice um became a thing was because people were trying to get around the laws <laughs> um that banned speed and so if you pack a bigger punch you can um carry less and you you know you're selling a smaller amount with a with a bigger effect yeah. um, for more money. Oh, wow. And mm. So actually our laws are creating kind of these... Um, that more dangerous know, kind of substitutes drugs. that yeah. are not natural, all the synthetic stuff as well. Yeah, um, the, uh, all of the, um, the new psychoactive substances, we call them, they're just a, a mix of all sorts of um, some some uh, kind of benign, some really quite dangerous some drugs. Some are scary, yeah. Um, and there's like 10,000 of those that have been developed in the last 10 years or 10,000 that have been reported to um, the, the UNODC. Wow. Um, who knows how many... Others have been kind of mixed up in backyard labs who do all sorts of, yeah. I don't know, what the They need to give are. these guys jobs creating <laughs> cures for cancer. Yeah. So they're creating 10,000 yeah, really. yeah. alternative versions of psychoactives. Imagine if we put them to good use. Well, some of the psychoactives yeah. might be beneficial and we don't even know. But Well, we're seeing that. We've, we had Dr. Stephen Bright on and he, there was some some the psychedelic drugs that they're doing some research into and and the, yeah. the effect they're having on uh, reducing addictions and, and some problems like that. Um, it's strange yeah. that all drugs are just smeared with the same sort yeah. of like drugs are bad. Um, and instead of being just like, you know, completely shut off to the idea that there's not benefits, I think we should just be open to the ideas that there's, like we see with the, you know, re- decriminalisation having the opposite effect of what you'd think it was, sometimes we need to be open-minded that we don't know it all and we need to experiment and learn. Yeah, I agree. And and I think that we need to be guided by the evidence about what works mm. rather than ideology mm, and what yeah. we what we feel like might be the right thing to do. Yeah. Because remembering that we've, you know, I mean I I grew up in the uh, 70s and 80s and I had Nancy Reagan in my head <laughs> and on our screens like um full on. Yeah. And so you know, even sometimes I think, oh you know, I I, ha- I carry some of those messages with mm. me as many of my um, kind of peers would. And so you can't 
if you don't stop and think about the realities and what the research says um, and you just go with your kind of gut, that's guided by stuff that you've been told for the last 20, 30, 40 years um, that might be wrong. Yeah. Yeah, so it's I, interesting. I, the one thing I'm very interested in, and I won't go into detail of who it was, but I've, I've had some <clears throat> meth-related um, problems within cl- close relationships. And one thing I found was the judgment on the people who were going through the problem and just turning their back on them instead of showing support. And I understand there was a few people who tried to show support in areas for a while and were burned too many times and gave up. But I, I found the support was... From what I could see, the support was what was needed, not the judgment, not the the abandonment. Um, is there like I'm pretty sure it'd be a common thing. So, what's your advice for like you know people who have family members, friends? Yeah, um, meth, meth seems to be the the destroy the biggest destroyer. Yes, some of my closest friendships are gone. Um, it's one of yeah, it's really destructive and it's really hard because you we're not trained we're just mates right we're not trained psychologists Mm. and you try to do the right thing and after a certain amount of times you're like well i can't i can't have this relationship any longer or i can't deal with this so that's a great question so Um, yeah well how do we best as just normal people with no real education in it uh, without pushing them or preaching to them because i think that's probably worse how do we best address these sorts of things yeah, I, it's it's a complex question. Mm, to yeah, just in five minutes, <laughs> yeah, sum up uh, a year, <laughs> uh, lifetimes of work for us, if you could summarize what the entire world's been trying to figure out. For the <laughs> last Twenty years. Yeah. Um, I do think one of the things that one of the kind of I don't want to say mistakes, but one of the kind of um, things that people do, like friends and family tend to do, is try and fix the problem. Mm. Um, in their way, right? So they try and fix the problem. The person might not be ready to fix the problem Mm. and they might not be wanting to fix it in that particular way. They might not want to go to rehab. Um, They might not want to go to withdrawal. They want to, maybe they want to do something else or maybe they're not not quite ready for that yet. Mm. So I think, um, Cameron, your thoughts about providing support um, are really important that, and then, and and Daniel, um, ideas about, like how much can you take mm. before you give up? I think that there's kind of some combination of that, which might be um, you provide support, but you have boundaries around yourself. So I'm not put. I don't want to put up with you shouting at me because you're you've been taking ice. Yeah. So I'm not going. I'm not going to do that. But I will be here when you um, come Dry down out. and you yeah. stop. Right. And so it's it, it's you know, providing support for the person but not um, endorsing those difficult behaviours that you're not prepared to put up with. Yeah. Yeah, so someone like, say, the most famous Australian case would be Ben Cousins. You probably have to be. Um, It seems like he's got everything back on track now and he just wasn't ready until he was ready, which seems to be recently in the last year or two doing... Yeah. Looks like he's doing well. And it's, it's a shame because, like, as a comedian you find someone like Ben as as a punchline, which sucks because I know he's a person, but like you're trying to, whatever your bit might be and you can you can riff and the hard part is like as a comic, but also trying to support mental health. Like I've, I'm in that weird ground where I'm like, oh, mm. I, you want to, you, I still use stuff like Ben, but if I was to meet him, like I would never, yeah, yeah you know, yeah, which, yeah. Is a, which is the That's, toughest, but he wasn't ready. And I guess it just goes to, show what what you're saying like the person needs to be ready to change otherwise 
we're just fucking hitting our head against the brick wall. Yeah, and actually providing support helps them be ready for change. But, you know, punishing them and you know, doing the whole tough love thing or interventions and all that stuff, that actually, if you think about um, if you were trying to change something and someone said to you, you need to change, I don't like the way you're doing that, you need to do it my way, I suggest that you do this, Every, all of us would be going, yeah, hang on, not, yeah. not that's not yeah. what I'm doing. And I, and if you look at Ben Cousins over the longer period of when he started getting into trouble with drugs, so he was was fairly minor to start with, and then it obviously became a bit of a problem. His family was around him the whole time, yeah. um, supporting him, but not kind of condoning any of the um, kind of difficult behaviours that he was experiencing. Then he kind of came good a little bit. He, you know, he had that comeback. I was at that match where he kind of came back for Richmond. And, um, you know, everyone was behind him and then he relapsed again. And that is a really common pattern. And I, I think it's a mistake to punish someone for relapsing from a drug that, um, you know, has taken hold of them. I suppose that it's not something that they're doing deliberately um, and they need more support when they relapse rather than less support. Mm. What about the, the school thing? So I'm, I'm of an Italian background and it's basically like you sort your, sh- sort your shit out or that's it, you're out of the family. Um, what kind of personal responsibility do you, can you put onto the person there? Because part of me is like, well, you know, it's if you really want to do something, you should be able to do it. Like full stop. So is that an old school way of thinking? I, I, I don't like, um, what's the word, victim blaming, but I also really dislike when people don't take responsibility for their own actions or take action and blame the world or blame someone else. Um, how do you reframe that thinking? Because it's something doesn't sit right with me when people won't, when they blame everyone else for stuff that's happening to them and they're like, oh, poor me, woe is me. So how do you get that to switch? And is my thinking wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think that's um, a really good question. There are some people who just have, psychologists call that an external locus of control, Mm. where they believe that things just happen to them, that it's other people's um, fault and responsibility, um, and they don't have a very good internal sense of um, power over their ability to kind of influence the world. And if you're like that it is really quite difficult to um give up drugs or to see the world in a positive way or to to feel like you've got power and control over what you do so um it's tricky Mm. i think that if i really think most people who get into problems with alcohol or and other drugs manage it on their own eventually give up on their own or maybe with some family or friends support um, but if you can't do that and it's interfering with your life, then it's best to go find a professional to to help you um, in your individual situation. Yeah, because part of like my, my, and going like sort of devil's advocate for what Delby just said, like <clears throat> uh, uh, I'll use a different example, like anxiety attacks, which we probably both have an experience with. If someone just told me to sort my shit out and stop having anxiety attacks yeah. and stop <laughs> feeling like yeah. shit. I, I want to, of course I want to, just like a drug yeah. uh, a addict or a de- someone who's dependent on the drugs. Um, 
would want to stop. Of course, they would probably want to stop deep down, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they have the tools to do it. So um, that's I, exactly right. Yeah. I guess just saying take self responsibility. Just say no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Taking self, uh, being self accountable, and, yeah. and that is it's great. Like because I agree in certain aspects of life. Yeah, yeah be accountable for your actions. But um, but it'd be like telling a baby to run. Instead of walk, you got to teach yeah, yeah, a yeah. person how to take responsibility for themselves. I guess. Yeah, so. yeah, and I think I think Cameron, that's a really good analogy. If you're thinking about um, someone with an alcohol or drug problem, if you replace alcohol or drugs with anxiety or depression, and think about how you would respond to that, that's a pretty that's a good way to think of it. It takes away that the stigma and the biases and the prejudice we have about drugs because you would never say to someone who um you know say i'm i'm uh, i've been depressed and i'm feeling fine now i've had some treatment and then i start to feel depressed again no one's gonna really i don't think anyone would say um well you can come back and see me when you've stopped being depressed yeah um you sort yourself out and you, you would actually jump in more to that, you know, support that person more if they were depressed, not less. Well, it depends who they are. There's some great musicians that have created amazing <laughs> music from being depressed. So maybe just stay in that a little longer and make some they more music. need a little, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little a bit little, of depression. A little kind of, yeah, Well, just how much, how much research have you done on depression? Because I've just had a uh, thing pop into my head where they recently – I might be wrong, but recently research suggests that there's no chemical imbalance um, that you mm. can treat with a depression. Uh, have, do you know much about that? Is that true? And and is it not correct the way we've been treating it as a chemical imbalance? Well, the, the, what we've realised is that the medications for depression um, actually don't work that well. Mm. So they're, they work quite well for a small number of people, but for most people they're not great and most people will need um, psychotherapy of some sort usually um, behavioral and cognitive type of therapy is the most effective mm. either in conjunction with their medication or instead of yeah, um, yeah and that old that it is a kind of old idea it was an old theory that um, that depression is a chemical imbalance there are chemical change, like there are differences in um, people's brains who are depressed compared to when they're not depressed and and other people who don't get depression. Um, so in that sense, there is a kind of imbalance, but it's not in the way that we were thinking. Yeah. Um, so it just might be yeah. like if you stop doing exercise, of course your dopamine or of course your receptors are going to drop because you're not used to doing it. So if you start exercising, exactly, because yeah. that yeah. or eating healthy or whatever that um. I, I think I recently seen uh, that that messaging had been pushed by the big pharma companies that were creating the oh, America. The, yeah, of course. So yeah. the, the pharmaceutical companies <laughs> yeah. that were making money off selling the antidepressants and and morphine, I think um, those sorts of things that they, they were pushing that messaging without any evidence to suggest it was mm. a real thing. So I get that, and I'm conscious of your time because we're all. You, I know you're already running late yeah. <laughs> today, so thank you so much. So <laughs> I just have one more. Uh, question like yeah. in regards to decriminalization slash legalization mm -hmm. and the differences but like is australia close to that i i know we're obviously getting close to that with um marijuana but uh is there is there something moving forward in australia that you can see happening and is that something you're pushing for or having a say in policy with anyone yeah i think um so well one one of the things to note i suppose is that all like the u.s 
all of our drug laws are state-based. There's some, not all of them, most of them are state-based. So there's some federal laws that govern importation and all that kind of stuff. Um, but basically, most of the laws are state-based. And so every state has a different law um, and different way of dealing with things. Um, but for about 25 or 30 years, um, South Australia, the ACT and the Northern Territory have all had decriminalisation of cannabis. Mm. Um, so if you get caught, you just get a fine, like a speeding fine. Um, a, two years ago, um, the ACT moved a step further and um, essentially legalised uh, growing your own cannabis plants. Two plants, was it? Use. Was it two plants? Four. 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 Ironically, yeah, sorry, right no, where the politicians two. live as well. <laughs> yeah. So it's two per two per person, you're right, and four for a household. Um, so, yeah, it, but interestingly, um, even though the ACT and South Australia have had, uh, had decriminalisation of cannabis for 25, 30 years, um, they they're the two states with the lowest rate of cannabis use in Australia. Mm. So again, getting back to the early conversation, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily increase use by decriminalising. Is that drugs. per capita or just because they're obviously smaller states? No, per capita, yeah. yeah the, wow. The, the proportion yeah. of the population who use. And then this because year, most people leave the, those states. <laughs> 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 they have an epiphany when they're high and they yeah, bail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, this year they've gone one step further actually and they've decriminalised um, decriminalised um, all drugs, well, a, a long list of illicit drugs for personal use. So now um, you don't get arrested and put in jail um, if you have, if you, even if you're using ice or heroin, a range of other drugs, as long as they're under uh, a particular limit that is yeah. considered for personal use. Not a so trafficable a kilo. Yeah, <laughs> so not a yeah. trafficable yeah. amount. Like not yeah, drug yeah. trafficking yeah. is completely different to personal use, isn't it? But, yeah. So yeah, yeah. and yeah. also it's kind of I mean, interesting. Even, yeah, sorry, you go. Oh, even that is a um, like is a kind of grey area because lots of people will buy a lot of drug and disperse it among their friends, and really they're not trafficking mm. or mm. you know manufacturing or selling or any of those things, um, but they might be holding trafficable quantities yeah. um, before they get dispersed. But um, pure so economics, it's, not, it's cheaper to buy more, and if it's good, exactly. they want more of it for themselves. So mm. yeah. It's a bit of a hard one because the trafficable amount might be somebody's dependence. Like Mike Tyson on Coke back in the day for yeah. what he would go through was, you know. Um, yeah. But maybe just to finish on, um, something, anything that what really gets your juices going, what really interests you um, and looking to the future, what are you, what are you hoping to, to do? And any message for the listeners that need help or anything um, that you can plug your business for? Um, well, so many things that I'm interested in, cool. but I really think that like the key, the really key thing is drug law reform because that impacts on how people perceive drugs. Mm. Um, it impacts on stigma. We know that um, people who feel um, stigma from their drug use are less likely co to come into treatment. So we've got people kind of running around with, um, you know, with 
pretty big drug habits that won't go into treatment because they're embarrassed about it or they they feel like they're going to be um, kind of called out and shamed about it. So I think everything comes back to changing our drug laws. We know that, you know, like seatbelts, you guys probably won't remember, but in the 70s we changed the seatbelt laws and um, those laws changed, even though for some time before that, we knew that seatbelts were safer. Once the laws changed, everybody started wearing their seatbelt. And I don't think there wouldn't be many people now that would get in a car and not put their seatbelt on. Mm. Um, and I think even if we took those laws away, people would still put their seatbelt on. So yeah, of course, it's a safety thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's a safety thing. That's <laughs> right. And so I think that laws change opinions. And um, so everything for me comes back to um, making fairer laws and um, making laws that are, are up to date with the research and, and modern thinking about drugs. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Mm. Okay. So if anyone um, needs help, what's the best way or um, anything that your business can do, um, give us a quick little plug or a little help. Sure. If you um, need help with... Um, personal use or you've got questions about um, drugs or someone that you love and you want to find out more or you want to get them help, um, there is a drug and alcohol hotline um, that you can call. And I can order uh, MDMA. <laughs> <laughs> something something yeah. like that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's a, like a telephone service that you can um yeah, find out all sorts of, yeah, you can get referrals, you can um, get information, you can just have a one-off chat with somebody. Um, yeah, that's the probably the best place to start. And the phone number for that is 1-800-250-015. Um, I think that if, you, if anybody's worried about their own or somebody else's drug use, that's the best place to start or to talk to your GP. Um, Do you think that some GPs are a little out of touch these days, though? I it yeah, it's really variable. Yeah, um, which GP you talk to, so that it's a bit of a problem there. But if um, you know if you've got a good GP that you've got a good relationship with, yeah, um, and you want to ask some questions, I'm sure they'd be open to at least trying to find you the answers. Yeah, to those. Mm. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, as far as a, a plug for my business, yeah. we work we like we work with schools and we work with organisations, health services, mental health services. So yeah. we'd love to hear from anybody who needs some help with um, kind of getting up to scratch with their their drug policy. Amazing, yeah, perfect. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time. Look, we'll we, we'll just do the the back and outs um, on our own and let you go so you can get on with your busy day. Mm. Um, so All thank right. you so much. And in the future, Thanks we'd love much. to have you again if you enjoyed yourself. And if not, I will speak to your assistant. <laughs> <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. Guys. Have a great day. Mm-hmm. See you. Bye. Thank you.